Drafting Archetypes is sponsored by Grey Viking Games. Grey Viking Games is the best place to get MTGA arena codes. From booster packs to awesome cosmetics, check them out at greyvikinggames.com and use our code DRAFT for 10% off. Hi everyone, this is Sam Black with Drafting Archetypes, and today we are going to talk about Wandrix Ramp. Quandrix Ramp, I think, is fundamentally a proactive deck. There's not, like, a lot of removal. There aren't a lot of, like, grindy elements. There's some card advantage. There are a few answers. There are some, like, tempo plays. But for the most part, you, you're thinking about yourself. You're not an aggressive deck, but you're, like, assertive. You are trying to kill your opponent. Uh, you're not necessarily trying to, like, run them down with two drops. Your ideal game is basically, like, play a two drop that's going to stop you from dying play a ramp spell or a thing that impacts the board, then another, like, the other one, and then start playing big stuff and then attack your opponent with big stuff while you, like, slowed them down a little bit and your big stuff, like, goes over their little stuff. Tempo is a concept that matters to you. As far as, like, the whole, like, tempo versus uh, attrition axis, you are much more tempo than attrition. You're hoping to not get into races in that you're hoping to establish board stalls. You're more likely to try to get, like, a stall rather than trade you're you're playing big games i guess is the better way to talk about it on the like big game small game how many permanents are on the battlefield analysis this deck is looking to play big games you want there to be a bunch of stuff on the battlefield you want to have a lot of lands a lot of creatures and so when you're thinking about which cards are good you want to be thinking about the cards that are good in big games so that means that combat tricks are going to be good in this deck because you're going to be getting into messy combat situations where, like, you've played cards like, you know, Biomathematician, Professor of Zoomancy, you know, random Reach creatures, uh, Needlethorn Drakes that discourage attacking, give you, like, profitable double blocks, make it so that your opponents, like, three ones and two ones have, like, would have to trade down if they wanted to attack, generally lead to a situation where there are just a lot of creatures on the battlefield. The good thing about having a lot of creatures on the battlefield is that crowded board makes the game go a little bit longer, lets you get to the point where you're playing your cards that are higher impact than your opponent, more expensive creatures. The downside is that, you know, it might be hard to attack with just like a big creature that doesn't have evasion into a spot where your opponent can easily double block it. If you're trying to attack with a 5-5 five five and your opponent has two three threes, that's like a negative attack for you. Like you're, you're going to trade down with a 3-3 three three, um, if nothing happens. But on these messy boards, you're setting yourself up really well to take advantage of combat tricks. Now, if you make that attack with a 5-5 into your opponent's two 3-3s, if they go for the double block there, you have an arcade subtraction. Now you kill their thing. You kill one of their 3-3s for free. If you have like a big play or something, you potentially kill both of them and save your creature. They're just like different cards that you want in a, in a big game than a small game. So some of those are combat tricks, but also this kind of like mentality and thinking and building your deck in this way lets you take advantage of blue's hard evasion as opposed to like the soft evasion like frost trickster you can take advantage of the hard evasion in the form of like vortex runner and wormhole serpent the like actual unblockable evasion you can also take advantage of the soft evasion of frost trickster especially if you pair it with you know the tap effects like frost trickster but also snow day as far as ways to just like establish this like big board and then break through uh, those cards can really help with that your goal with this deck is to have cards that reward you for this like large battlefield 
and then also draft cards that let you set up this large battlefield. And then also, you know, obviously part of this whole process is getting to take advantage of the expensive finishers that exist in this format. So like getting to use and uh, maximize the advantage offered from like Bookworm and Leyline Invocation and potentially splashing some of those big Prismari cards. So the way that you're doing that is obviously with assorted ramp spells offered to Quandrix, uh, Emergent Sequence, Field Trip, Cultivate, Quandrix Cultivator. That's that's most... Oh, Eureka Moment. So that's kind of like the big picture thing that's going on. Large battlefields, take advantage of that. So the, the question then is, well, if you're trying to play a big game, where, where does that leave removal? Like, there's not a lot of it available, but how highly should you prioritize it? Like, am I saying that you shouldn't play Mage Duel because it is like a one-for-one -one trade that makes the game smaller? I'm not saying that. I do think that Mage Duel is really good in these decks. You really want to draft to maximize it. You know, it's really important to have removal spell for key creatures that your opponent plays. It's just that there's not that much of it available to you. While removal is still good in your deck, you also want to prepare for the situation where you can't just kill all your opponent's stuff. Like, Mage Jewel is very good. Baryan Books is good, but not as good as it is in Prismari or Demir, where those decks plan to get attacked and really want, like, an answer to big fractals and stuff. Where Prismari, you're hoping that your opponent doesn't have a lot of great attacks, and so you might have to spend five mana for it, which is a lot worse. You might have like other answers to big fractals in the form of just like, I don't know, death touching like with a Needlethorn Drake or uh, potentially using like Aether Helix or something. Certainly not saying Baryan Books is bad, but Mage Duel and Baryan Books are really, really close. Mage Duel actually has slightly better win rates in Quandrix than Baryan Books. Whereas for me, going into a draft, pack one, pick one situation, I'm prioritizing Baryan Books appreciably ahead of Mage Duel. If I know I'm Quandrix for sure, I, that can flip. Again, both great cards, not saying don't play variant books in your Quandrix decks or anything. You know, the general strategy of, okay, so I want to like play, you know, good creatures, ramp spells, big creatures. I get that. But there are a lot of like relatively interchangeable-ish similar power level cards in this archetype. So the same way that when I was discussing Silverquill Aggro, I talked about how there's like close, like which one do I want situation between Eager First Year, Arrogant Poet, and Leech Fanatic, where there are like all these like comparable power level, slightly different roll two drops. There are similar questions in Quandrix. There are a lot of different twos, a lot of different threes available, especially at three. The two mana creatures are pretty high priorities. It's really important to have two drops, especially if you have field trips and cultivates and stuff, and you're trying to play a ramp spell on turn three, you really, really want to have a two, a two a creature on the battlefield when you do that so you don't get beat up too badly while you're ramping. And so you're kind of just like, you know, snatching up the two drops and playing whatever you can get, especially the uncommons and the two drops with reach. Emergent Sequence, Pondrix, Apprentice, a Scurried Colony, and Needlethorn Drake. Those are all really high priorities. You just want as many as you can get, basically. The three mana cards are all a little bit more situational, a little bit lower pick. It's a little bit more important to make sure that you're playing the right ones because the wrong ones are going to be actively bad. Whereas, like, it's really hard to go wrong with any of those two drops. But I do think that you can make your deck worse by playing a three drop in a spot where you don't want to be playing it. The three drops that are relevant for this deck from among commons and uncommons in order very broadly, if highly I think you want to prioritize them, but not 
this isn't universal. So field trip is the uh, three mana, get a forest onto the battlefield, learn, cultivate, search for two lands, put one in the battlefield, one in your hand, basics. Quandrix Pledge Mage is the 2-2 Magecraft, get a plus one, plus one counter for hybrid, hybrid one. Kelpie Guide is the three mana, 2-2 uncommon that can tap to untap the permanent. And then once you have eight lands, it can tap things also. And then behind Kelpie Guide, but really, really close to Kelpie Guide, Frost Trickster, the 2-2 flyer for three that locks a creature down. And then a little behind that, Biomathematician, 2-2 that makes a 1-1 for 3, uh, that pumps all your fractals, makes a 1-1 fractal. And then substantially behind that in general, but still noteworthy, Vortex Runner, uh, which is the 2-3 that if you have 8 lands, gets an extra power and becomes unblockable. So those are like the 3 drops, and having listed them, let's take a bit of time to talk about which ones you're prioritizing and why. Field Trip, if you're not splashing, is better than Cultivate. I think if you are splashing, it's easy for Cultivate to pass Field Trip, especially if you don't have uh, access to environmental sciences. But one of the really big strengths of Field Trip is that it has this really nice natural curve of Field Trip into Elemental Summoning. Alternatively, Field Trip uh, can find Fractal Summoning. So you have this ramp spell that gives you a like late game like big mana payoff and so if you just compare field trip directly to cultivate just in terms of the text you know if you just want me to read these cards to you obviously they both search your library for your land and put it into play and then do something else for you specifically that other thing is putting another card in your hand so cultivate puts a land in your hand field trip puts a lesson in your hand is a land better than a lesson uh, if we needed to do hard fixing then cultivate its ability to get two basic lands that aren't forests very valuable. If we didn't need to do fixing, then it's pretty clear that at the point where we've already put another land on the battlefield, in addition to having three that we already had, if you're not really doing really expensive things with your deck, you probably want a lesson more than a land, especially because, you know, the nature of learn is you can get the lesson that's appropriate for the situation. Field trip over cultivate, because field trip is getting you to a lot of mana, you want to prioritize the lessons that cost a lot of mana so that they're good to put in your hand when you cast field trip. Quandrix Pledge Mage is the one with the next best stats. But I think I wouldn't recommend having like a mindset that you by default want a Pledge Mage over Kelpie Guide, especially uh, when you're in a space where you're really thinking of your deck as a ramp deck. The more you are putting additional lands onto the battlefield outside of your one per turn, the more Kelpie Guide goes up your rankings. Getting to the point where Kelpie Guide is a tapper is a really big deal. Also, in these decks that are planning to put additional lands onto the battlefield, you're more likely to have expensive spells, and Kelpie Guide's ability to help you cast those spells obviously is more important the more of them you have. Whereas the Pledge Mage wants you to have cheap spells so that you can cast a lot of them, so that you can get more counters. A Pledge Mage is going to be better than Kelpie Guide as a function of how many cheap instants and sorceries you have. And more specifically than that, it wants cheap cantrips, it wants cheap counter spells, and it wants uh, cheap fight spells. So that means the quintessential perfect card for Pondrix Pledge Mage is Decisive Denial. Blue-green instant that either fights or mana leaks an instant or sorcery. And that and Quandrix Pledge, Mage, Quandrix Pledge Mage are super good friends because the Denial can protect your Pledge Mage and the Pledge Mage can enable the fight side of the Denial, where Decisive Denial can sometimes have trouble functioning as a removal spell because you need to have a creature that's larger than your opponent's creatures, which is not a, it's, that's not a sure thing, um, especially in a format where people are sometimes putting counters on their creatures when they're not playing green. It can make them bigger than your green creatures or whatever. 
those two cards really good together. But then, you know, other cards that fill similar roles, uh, Pledge Mage, Enabling Mage, Duel, uh, Negate, Test of Talents, Snakeskin Veil, Protecting Pledge Mage, and then also just cards like Opt and Curate help grow your Pledge Mage faster. All of those things push toward wanting Pledge Mage over Kelpie Guide. The less of that stuff you have, the more, you know, ramp spells and expensive stuff you have, the more you'll want Kelpie Guide over Pledge Mage. People who have watched a lot of my content likely know that I'm pretty low on any three mana tutu. Obviously applies to both Pledge Mage and Kelpie Guide. Neither of these are cards that I draft very highly myself. A lot of that is part of a larger stylistic thing about how I like to play and not necessarily so much that there's not a way to use these cards well. Though I do think that both of them are potentially slightly worse in this format than they read because the removal in this format is so strong, especially with uh, Lash of Malice at common and Shock at Uncommon, both as really high priorities for people to take and play. Playing these cards does give your opponent an easy way to potentially trade up on mana in a way that's very tempo negative for you. So like prioritizing these is a little bit disrespectful to Silverquill Aggro, where you're potentially setting yourself up to suffer a relevant uh, like tempo mana loss there. So proceed with caution slash if you're playing these, consider having cards that help position you well against uh, decks that have that stuff. So maybe like, you know, pair these with uh, Professor of Zoomancy and Scurried Colony and Needlethorn Drake, stuff that's going to make you not lose to the flyers, not lose to the, you know, removal or go wide or whatever. So behind those, Frost Trickster. Frost Trickster is kind of a card that doesn't need a lot of help. It gives you a good effect. It has a reasonable size body. You're not where Kelpie Guide is good if you have a bunch of ramp. Pledge Mage is good if you have like these certain spells that work with it. Trickster is just a solid you know, baseline all by itself. It's never going to be that bad to put a Trickster in your deck. Where Trickster is best, I think, is either if you are very aggressive, especially if you have more aggressive two drops, which I think mostly means like Colony rather than Needlethorn Drake. So, you know, if you tap a thing and attack, you're hitting your opponent for twice as much damage. And then other, you know, aggressive three and four mana creatures. So like, you know, maybe less field trips, more anything that's a creature instead of being a field trip, maybe fewer Eureka Moments and Quandrix Cultivators, more Professor of Zoomancies and Master Symmetrists, or, you know, maybe even playing Waterfall Aerialist, whatever it's called, the 3-1 flying board creature. But saying Trickster is good by itself doesn't tell you a lot about like, okay, but when am I supposed to play Trickster? So to me, place where I'm going to prioritize Trickster is if I am bad at impacting the battlefield for two and or four mana. Meaning if I'm going to take a turn off, either maybe to cast like Cram Session on two instead of playing a creature that can block, or if I'm going to take a turn off on turn four, maybe to play Eureka Moment instead of playing a creature that can block, then I kind of want the Frost Trickster there to help make sure that I don't fall too far behind while I'm doing that. I would say that the time to specifically prioritize Trickster is either when you're aggressive and really taking advantage of uh, the tempo aggressively, or when you are not aggressive and specifically not playing to the battlefield sometime, and so you need a little bit of a, a little bit of cushion that the Trickster can provide. Next up behind Trickster is Biomathematician, which is actually in a pretty similar space to Trickster in that it doesn't work especially well with, you know, 
the things that Pledge Major Kelpie Guide works with. It's more of a general purpose thing. And I mean, it also just literally functions pretty similar to the trickster if you want it to, in that the patch that it makes can, you know, chump block to stop the same attack that the trickster is stopping. Obviously, if that's the play that you make, then you're up a life instead of having flying on your remaining tutu, which is part of why trickster is probably a little bit better overall. I would say the space where you want Biomathematician is very similar to the space where you want Trickster, where you're taking a turn off impacting the battlefield, and so you want to make sure that on turn three you're playing something that's like as impactful as it possible, either to like catch you up from not having done something on two, or to prepare you to take a turn off impacting the battlefield on three. Biomathematician obviously has advantages over Trickster in that like it can trade off with a three toughness creature, which Trickster just can't do. And obviously the biomathematician scales well with multiple, if you have multiples, really, really good with emergent sequence or anything else that makes a fractal, or kind of good with anything else that makes a fractal. Emergent sequence is notable because it makes a fractal for very little mana that comes down before the biomathematician, where for the most part, fractals are generally more expensive and already very large and don't benefit that much from a plus one, plus one counter outside of those made by biomathematician. Also biomathematician, incidentally, in addition to being good with other copies of Biomathematician, is good with itself. If it dies and you can get it back with something like an Aether Helix, or if for some reason it bounces or something uh, and gets cast again, then that's that's valuable. Oh, sorry. You are not up a life when you block the Biomathematician's Fractal, of course, because it's a Fractal and not a Pest. Um, it's Professor of Zoom. I see where you get a life if you do the jump blocking. Sorry about that. The last three drop is Vortex Runner. Vortex Runner has none of the advantages of any of the other three drops. It has its own advantage in that it has three toughness, which means that it doesn't get killed by Lash or Shock, and can potentially block against, like, Leech Phonetics or other two-power creatures. But the can block against other two-power creatures advantage is a little bit dicey because a lot of them have Flying or have... Menace in the case of Blood Researcher or in the case of Lorehold Pledge Mage and Eager First Year don't necessarily have two power and uh, can trade off with the Vortex Runner pretty easily. But it is nice that it doesn't die to the removal spells. Technically has another toughness. That's that's good. But it is a worse creature on turn three than any of these other creatures. The reason that you might want it is if you are very good at gumming up the board and maybe not so good at winning. It is definitely possible for these decks to be good at exactly that like i can put a bunch of stuff into play but if my opponent also puts a bunch of stuff into play like if i'm playing a quandrix mirror i just have to kind of i don't know hope i have more high rarity cards than they do or something so basically vortex runner is great in precisely the quandrix mirror Vortex Runner also works well with a couple other specific rares. Like, it's good with Exponential Growth, and it's good with the backside of Augmenter Pugilist. I don't remember the name. But the thing that turns all of your things into a copy of it gives you kind of like a, you know, falter, kill you effect. So, Vortex Runner, niche utility. Good if you know that you are... Good if you're sideboarding for the mirror, if you're playing best of three. Alternatively, good if you know that your deck is a little bit lacking in ways to break through in a mirror. So if you know if you have Snow Day, Wormhole Serpent, Bookworm, multiple bookworms, maybe some good flyers or whatever, and you're you feel comfortable with your positioning in the mirror, then you might not need Vortex Runner. But if you think that you might struggle to break through ever, 
then Vortex Runner might be a reasonable card to play just to make sure that you can end a game that stalls out. Not, not a great card, but definitely one to keep in mind in your arsenal of possible, you know, cards with some utility or playables or whatever. As far as four mana cards, the go-to is Professor of Zoomancy. Great four drop, really helps with gumming up the board, really helps with, like, you know, hits hard if you can hurt your opponent's creatures, if they stumble, if you tap their stuff down with Frost Trickster. Often your opponent has to use a removal spell on the bear, and you're left with a pest, and you're just up some value, and that's cool. Really, really good card just all around. But everyone knows it's good. <laughs> Don't always have a lot of them. There are other four drops that you end up playing as well. Eureka Moment and Master Symmetrist are the big ones. And then there's also Serpentine Curve. Serpentine Curve in Quandrix is a whole, you know, different can of worms. I haven't fully solved understanding Serpentine Curve in Quandrix. I, I feel like I have a really, really, really good handle on Serpentine Curve in Removal Heavy Control decks, Serpentine Curve in Demir, Serpentine Curve in everything that's not Quandrix. What I know is that Serpentine Curve is absolutely great when you are, you know, the like Demir kind of deck that I draft. The other thing that I know is that Serpentine Curve stats across the board don't live up to my experiences with it, which means that somewhere out there, people are playing Serpentine Curve and losing. And not, not just they're losing with Serpentine Curve or losing with decks that have Serpentine Curve, but they are losing more often when they draw Serpentine Curve than when they don't. It, it is not contributing well to their success. Somewhere out there, there are decks that people think it makes sense to play Curve in where it doesn't perform. And I have to imagine, a lot of the time, those are Quandrix decks that have probably in the neighborhood of 7 to 11 creatures, where it can look like Serpentine Curve is good, but it has a very real fail state, where sometimes you have a slightly creature-heavy draw, and you draw Serpentine Curve, and it just is a 2-2 if you want to cast it. And I've played against opponents who cast 2-2 Serpentine Curves. I've, you know, talked to people who like Serpentine Curves in Quandrix decks. I've tried putting it in my deck, and I've been in spots where my only play is like, well, I can cast a 1-1 Serpentine Curve, or I can pass the turn. I don't like either of these options. So there's a very real risk to playing Serpentine Curve in most Quandrix decks. That said, there are certainly, you know, ways that you can draft Quandrix where you just prioritize the blue cards that make Curve good, prioritize field trips, and keep your creature count down in the 4-7 to seven type range. And then it, then it can certainly be a good card. But I do think that taking advantage of Serpentine Curve properly in Quandrix requires going significantly out of your way from the baseline Quandrix deck in a way that I think requires a lot of caution and the draft to go a certain way, and also positions you to not naturally be in a spot to take advantage of a lot of the best tools available to Quandrix. Specifically, I'm talking about fight spells, which are harder to use if you're keeping your creature count low. I would advise caution in using Serpentine Curve in Quandrix decks. For the most part, I would prefer to avoid it. If you don't have a lot of four drops, that's actively good if you do have a lot of field trips and uh, cultivate. So you can consider simply not playing fours outside of Professor of Zoomancy, Quandrix Cultivator, Eureka Moment, Master Symmetrist. Some of those are uncommons, but you can get your Eureka Moments late. 
it's okay to just like not prioritize fours and to just go straight from three into big stuff or even just three into like, you know, I play a two drop, I play a three drop and then next turn I play two different two mana spells. Maybe I like attack and play an arcane subtraction and then play a scurried colony post combat or something. You don't necessarily need to worry about your four drop in this deck, but if you have some of those four drop ramp stuff, that can be good if you are, you know, leaning hard into the like Leyline Invocation Bookworm type top end. Uh, Quandrix Pledge Mage is another reasonable big thing to play. Um, so about that, top end stuff. Bookworm is admittedly what is up here. When you are Quandrix Ramp, the thing that you want to be is a Bookworm deck. Again, people who are particularly familiar with my content might know that I'm relatively low on Bookworm myself. I don't prioritize ramp very highly. I prefer to play more of an attrition game where you don't necessarily care about ramping. And when I'm not ramping, I don't necessarily want an eight mana card that's trying to win the game because I mostly feel like by the time I've gotten to eight, I either have control of the game or I'm dead. And Bookworm isn't going to help me establish control, isn't going to help me like get to that much mana. It's, you know, Bookworm is a one-dimensional card. Bookworm turns, I have reached eight mana in a somewhat stable situation into a game win. That is something that Quandrix is in the market for. They get to eight mana reliably and early. It is not something that I'm in the market for in my decks that prioritize removal spells, so I personally don't like to prioritize Bookworm early. But if you are a Quandrix ramp, Bookworm is a great way to get rewarded for you know, playing the cards that you want to be playing, taking the game actions you want to be taking. In those, you know, big games that I talked about where you're like, okay, well, now I need to do it. find a way to attack, but we have this crowded board. How do I attack? My creature might trade down. It's a bookworm. I attack. They block with two five fives. I kill one of them. My bookworm dies. I put it back on top of my deck because I draw cards and gain life. So when I play my bookworm, I don't care that I've traded down with a five five. I'm happy to just do that over and over. I can grind my opponent out with this single bookworm trading down multiple times because bookworm doesn't really trade down unless it's getting exiled. So uh, bookworm is a great, you know, this is how I plan to win the game type finisher. Another how I plan to win the game type finisher that is much easier to come by because other people don't prioritize it very highly is wormhole serpent, which doesn't have particularly amazing stats, but I think is really good in Quadrix specifically, especially if you are a little bit low on ways to win the game or, you know, have ramp and not other five drops. I'm very into five toughness in this format. Being able to block elementals is really good. Not dying to heated debate. I, I like the numbers on Wormhole Serpent. And then if you just have big fractals or just, you know, a crowded board, you have eight mana and you have, you know, a professor of Zoomancy and some random three power creature or whatever, you can kill your opponent really quickly. Um, so Wormhole Serpent is a good thing to do to end the game. Outside of that, Bookworm, Leyline Invocation. Leyline Invocation is very strong if you're ramping. My favorite is just Fractal Summoning. Don't have to devote a space in your deck for it. Always have access to it. I really love having multiple Fractal Summonings. You just get to a spot where you're like, all right, we're in the late game. Here's a Fractal Summoning. Your opponent's like, oh no, I have to scramble to deal with this huge thing. And then like they, you know, maybe use two cards and deal with it or whatever. And you're like, okay, that's fine. I have another one. They're just like, oh no, now what? A, a lot of the best ramp decks I think have like as many fractal summonings as you can get your hands on. Um, if you can just keep doing that, keep jamming like, you know, these huge cards that you didn't really have to like work for, that's just a really, really good way to turn. I have a bunch of mana into I've won the game. 
Another card that I think warrants specific discussion is Explosive Welcome, which is a card that I hate. You know, mostly it comes up when drafting Prismari, and I think that eight is a big number. Prismari is good at, you know, making things cost less, getting it down to reasonable numbers, but I don't really like the cards that do that. And I think that it is less impactful than the cards that cost seven. It is a whole different animal in Quandrix. Quandrix really values the removal that it offers. Uh, Quandrix plans to get to eight mana pretty easily. Quandrix values the fact that it's single red, unlike uh, Creative Outburst. It is also not a card that's drafted very highly, so you can get it relatively cheaply. There is no card that is taken later than it on average while having a better win rate than it does um, in Quandrix, which means that knowing that it's a card that you will likely want to splash in your Quandrix decks can give you a lot of free extra value by getting a late pick powerful spell. Explosive Welcome is a really good way to add some you know, late game oomph uh, or ability to push through or answers to problematic cards or whatever in your Quandrix deck. So I think that that's one of the cards to be most aware of in terms of like figuring out what's worth splashing in Quandrix. That, that's one to look for. Really good way to just take advantage of, I got to all the mana I was trying to get to, now what? Obviously, you know, Scurried Colony is a great answer to now what um, in terms of uh, taking advantage of, I have a lot of this ramp stuff. You're turning it into a 4-4, four, four, you know, on turn, turn 6 or whatever instead of turn 8. It's going to be a lot more impactful. Yeah, I think I, you know, have covered the basics here. A lot of, like, playing the ramp strategy is about really managing not dying while ramping. And, you know, pay attention to, like, how much ramp you have, which turn you're going to be playing the ramp spells on, and then making sure that around the turn that you play the ramp spells, you're sure to play cards that are good at keeping you alive regardless of how your opponent's attacking you, which is why I really prioritize Scurried Colony and Needlethorn Drake. And then if you're ramping for four mana with Eureka Moment and uh, Quandrix Cultivator, make sure that you have three mana creatures that are good defensively. If you're ramping for three mana with Field Trip and Cultivate, make sure that you have five mana cards that are good defensively or good at catching you up. Uh, Wither Bloom, Pledge Mage, Professor of Zoomancy being great uh, common examples of that kind of card. And then outside of that, just, you know, the discussion about two and three mana creatures and pairing them correctly with your support spells, um, I think is like very important to be aware of. I think that's the important stuff to understand that's not just raw power level cards and fundamentally understanding the game plan. So that concludes the lecture portion. If anyone has any questions about this archetype while waiting for that, I do want to thank my uh, new patrons over at patreon.com slash drafting archetypes. Nathan, Ryan, Doug, Jim, and Daniel, thank you very much for the support. And anyone else who is interested in uh, supporting the podcast, getting some more access, please, you know, check out the Patreon and see if it appeals to you. See if you want to sign up for that. So that's going to lead smoothly into the question and answer period. First question, what about Aether Helix? I love it. Its stats aren't great. My explanation for love it plus its stats aren't great is while I love it, there are a lot of decks I don't play it in because I don't have enough permanence that I expect to be in the graveyard for me to reliably be able to cast it. I suspect that there are some people who have less discipline and might play it in decks where it's bad. On the other hand, I also think that most players are less likely to draft decks where it's bad than I am. I suspect that I might slightly overrate it 
because it's very good against me because I often play a lot of large token creatures and a lot of removal spells. And it's very good against both of those things. And I don't get to play it enough to experience its downside. Mostly I play against it and it's awesome. I've played with it a little bit in decks where it's good and it has been very good. I think that it's a great card that give you, gives you access to removal for large fractals, which I think is an important thing to have access to. And I think that its ability to like rebuy your important uh, permanents is really good. It plays super well with Needlethorn Drake. Um, in particular, since that card trades off so much, but also well with, you know, just any, you know, a deck with a good number of good creatures that are, you know, good early, good late, which Quandrix is good at having. Needlethorn Drake and Scourge Colony are both good early and late, but so are Quandrix Apprentice and Zimone. Overgrown Arch is really good with it because you can put itself in the graveyard and then come back and do learning again. So, um, yeah, I think Aether Helix is very good, but you do need to make sure that you have cards that are going to trade off that are going to be worth returning, but then it's sweet. Also, um, if you do find yourself in a spot where you're splashing, it is a very cute combo with Pillow Drop Warden, the 1-5 Reach uh, Spirit Dwarf that can sacrifice itself to get your Aether Helix back, and then your Aether Helix can get your Warden back. And this loop doesn't really... All this loop nets you as a sorcery speed bounce, but that does translate to kill all of your opponent's tokens if you end up in the teamer space. Next question is, how many learn slash lessons do you usually want, and how often do you want splash? So, I mean, the stats categorically about the format are the more learns and lessons you have, the more you win. I think that that applies to this archetype, obviously. I think that you would love to have both a lot of field trips and cram sessions and a lot of, you know, fractal and elemental summonings. There's not really a limit to the number of those things that I want. If I had, you know, four cram sessions and four field trips and seven good lessons, I would be delighted. At the same time, you know, there are a lot of other good cards. Uh, if I ended up with fewer of both, that would be fine too. I think that similar principles apply to basically every deck in this format. I think it's less important to know how many to be targeting and more important to know which ones to be prioritizing. So I think that the ones that you want to prioritize in Quadrix Ramp, you want to prioritize the lessons that are on plan, uh, Cram Session, Arcane Subtraction, Field Trip, more than Pop Quiz uh, because you're not an attrition deck and so pop quiz takes like doesn't impact the battlefield in a spot where you really want to be playing the battlefield as much as you can it's a, that's not to say pop quiz is unplayable or anything just by default in this archetype i would prefer the other learn cards as for lessons again you want to expect to have a lot of mana and it's pretty easy to have like reasonable ground blockers so i want to take the things that are going to play well with a lot of mana so I want Elemental Summoning, Fractal Summoning, Intro to Annihilation, and Intro to Prophecy as the uh, highest priority common lessons. Next question. So this is about Emergent Sequence versus Field Trip and Cultivate. But I like to interpret this question as, can you compare three mana ramp spells to two mana ramp spells? Two mana ramp spells are better than three mana ramp spells, which is like a little um, glib, but Emergent Sequence has um, like incredible stats. It's really good. It is to be prioritized over those things in this deck in particular. I personally have drafted Cultivate over Emergent Sequence very recently, but that was in a spot where I was doing it more for fixing than for like ramping and in a multicolor deck rather than a two-color deck. 
Emergence sequence is dicey for enabling splashes, especially if you're playing only a single copy of the land that you are trying to find, because you expose it to a removal spell and then you can't cast your splash cards. As far as like raw power level, emergence sequence is far better as a ramp card. Next question is related. How reluctant am I to use sequences and means to fix, given the risk that your splash land dies? The answer is if I am using it in that capacity, I want to make sure that I can play a second land of that type so that I'm never like searching for the only searchable land that I have and getting it killed and not being able to make my spell work. Next question, how do you feel about uh, splashing for explosive welcome in Pondrick's ramp? That was discussed. That was discussed, but it is good. Oh, I see. The, this was intended to be about Elemental Masterpiece. Elemental Masterpiece is an acceptable splash in Quandrix Ramp. It is lower priority than um, Explosive Welcome, but totally serviceable thing to do. I think that I would like rather take a Leyline Invocation than move into red for a Masterpiece, but I think that like if you are already like planning to play a Mountain and have reasonable access to it, they are comparable cards. Next question is about Resculpt, which is a card that I uh, included in my notes but forgot to discuss explicitly. Resculpt is worth some discussion in Quandrix. Resculpt is not good. Resculpt stats are bad. It is a narrow card. However, it definitely has a role in Quandrix. I've used it quite a bit to good effect. My bar for playing it is I need to have some one ones. Uh, it's not hard to get those. You can have Pest Summoning, or more likely Biomathematician and Professor of Zoomancy. If you have a few of those, then I like to play Resculpt, where I have the easy buyout of turn a 1-1 into a 4-4 at instant speed, where I might kill an attacker. In addition to the fact that all of that can come up and is pretty good, I get the ability to play a 2-mana instant speed 4-4 anytime my opponent uses a removal spell if I have a mana available. And I also get the ability to turn my opponent's things into 4-4s. Doesn't sound great, 4-4s four are pretty good, but they're not as good as bookworms. Also, sometimes my opponent's thing might have been participating in a mage's duel or some other equivalent contest, and removing their competitor could be substantially advantageous. It also answers assorted random equipment that you might not be able to beat otherwise or other cards. Um, the versatile answer comes up frequently, and Quandrix ramp is generally pretty good at dealing with the 4-4. It's not great. You're still likely to for wanting yourself if you trade for like an elemental or a professor of zoomancy. Sometimes you can invalidate it with your own larger fractal, but often it's going to end up doing something. It's hard for a 4-4 to be completely blanked. It can definitely save you to turn your opponent's object into a 4-4, even against like a combat professor, where certainly, you know, if combat professor is just like a 4-mana 4-4 that makes your opponent like spend 2-mana and discard a card, that's great but sometimes that's more beatable than what Combat Professor actually is. Resculpt is something to look for when you have the convergence of a small number of removal spells and a large number of 1-1 tokens, or similar. Then it's serviceable, useful, solid card. Next question, what's the optimal number of Pop Quiz Field Trip Cultivate? As, as I mentioned, Pop Quiz is lower priority for me because this is not an attrition deck and Pop Quiz serves only to generate card advantage, plus like tutoring, but I would prefer to have other access to my lessons. Optimal number of field trip and cultivate. Depends on, you know, like that's largely a function of like, do I have enough twos that I'm definitely not gonna fall behind? Do I have enough expensive things that I can get value out of ramping multiple times? 
do I have two book like so in other words if I have like three or four total scurried colony and needlethorn drakes and like two bookworms and two fractal summonings then I don't know four or five field trips sounds pretty good to me um in a normal deck I don't know two or three but it, it really depends on the construction of your deck and how good you are at taking advantage of putting a bunch of extra lands onto the battlefield Next question, how often do you go to 18 lands? Um, I would certainly hope not to very much since I'm planning to play other cards that ramp. This would largely be if most of my ramp is Eureka moments and I have a bunch of late game stuff. That has never come up for me, but it does sound hypothetically possible. Next question, how often do you want to splash? If you can get an environmental sciences, which is either it comes cheap or you get it early um, before you know that you're like, solidly a two-color deck and you're prioritizing its flexibility or just drafting the way I do or whatever. If you have a science, then it's basically trivial to splash some of this like late game stuff. If you don't have science, you still can splash. And then if we're talking about like splashing explosive welcome, it's pretty easy, right? Like if you have two campuses and like a cultivate and you play like a basic, that's plenty of sources to do it fairly safely. Not not sure exactly what that translates into how often, but uh, whenever needed and easy. If you're splashing three cards, how much mana do you want for that specific source? Is it a two to one ratio? It's not exactly a two to one ratio. If I'm splashing three cards, I would be comfortable having like five ways to get the mana instead of six. But it largely, I mean, you want as much as you can get safe, like as much as you can get without it running into your other mana. Not all splash cards are created equally. Like you want a lot more sources for an igneous inspiration than you do for an explosive welcome. So it depends isn't the answer you're looking for. And it's not a solid ratio. For three cards, I'm going to say five sources. And you're going to have to know that that's a rough estimate and it's complicated. What should push me to draft Quandrix? Why should I draft Quandrix instead of Prismari Splash Green? I'm not sure what your compulsion to draft Prismari Splash Green as a default is. Generally, the good uncommons and commons put me into Quandrix. Uh, Bookworm, Quandrix Cultivator, Emergent Sequence are some of the strongest draws to this in particular, since Emergent Sequence plays well, and Bookworm both like play well with doing the Quandrix thing. Quandrix Cultivator obviously requires a lot of Quandrix manas. Quandrix Apprentice, similar situation. Most of the time that I've been, you know, Quandrix, it's been either I have some of that stuff or I have, you know, some kind of good card into good card type situation, like first pick, uh, multiple choice, second pick, Professor of Zoomancy type setup. And then why you should be two colors instead of three. Maybe you didn't see fixing. Maybe you're specifically trying to push the synergies that exist in Quandrix. Next question, I'm assuming red is the most common splash in Quandrix, presumably due to the expensive red spells plus access to heated debate. Are there other colors you've splashed in any regularity or have liked? I've splashed white for approach in a spot where that was good, and I've splashed black for removal, and I guess I've, you know, dipped into black a little bit more than a splash for, like, Professor Onyx. Black, like, it's not hard to be like, yeah, I'm going to splash this, like, Mortality Spear and Eliminate or something as a, you know, the black offerings. 
Next question, would you play Verdant Mastery in this archetype? I am willing to play Verdant Mastery in extreme situations, which can come up frequently in this archetype. It would depend on how many payoffs for getting to eight lands I had. That can be, you know, Scurried Colony, Kelpie Guide type stuff, or it can be, you know, Bookworm Fractive Summoning type stuff. But there, there are certainly versions of Quandrix Ramp where I would play Verdant Mastery. Next question, how do I not lose to Silver Quill when I'm Quandrix? I think the most important thing is to really prioritize the cheap creatures that can block flyers. Scurried Colony and Needlethorn Drake. As I mentioned, you want like as many of them as you can get. If you're low on them, you can supplement with Frost Tricksters and Biomathematicians. Also, prioritize Mage Duel very highly. Play Varian books. This is like why you want these removal spells, even though you're fundamentally a go-big deck. Uh, Professor of Zoomancy is good. The token can help against some of the stuff they attack with. But yeah, mostly just like the fact that you have late game and expensive spells doesn't mean you can't also play early game. In fact, the fact that you are likely to take some turns off to ramp means that you want to play even more early game. So you really, really want to prioritize those those cheap spells, both the uh, creatures that block well and also like cram session and arcane subtraction to help give you a little bit of a cushion and also the you know combination of blocking with a creature blocking something with needle thorn drake and using arcane subtraction um, is a really really good way to punish someone who's trying to attack you yeah just just make sure you have a lot of the cheap interaction to get to a late game before you start doing the like ramp and big stuff but definitely don't skimp on two drops uh, regardless of like how much you're ramping next question how often do you play charge through if you have a lot of fractals. I'm not super concerned with that. I would rather do the like uh, wormhole serpent thing or just attack again the next turn. But if I have some other synergies, like if I have, you know, serpentine curves that want the card in the graveyard, if I have Quandrix Pledge Mages I'm pumping that can also get big, I think it's fine to play it. But like if it's just for fractals and not for like any mage crafts or anything, then I'm not very into it. How do you win if you don't have a ton of power at the top end? And that's, I guess getting into the space where I was talking about like this is a place to look to use Vortex Runner or some other you know scrappy finisher where you know you maybe have just like some big fractals and random mid-range stuff but you're worried about closing I think that Vortex Runner is sometimes the best you can do if that's like a problem that you expect your deck to have. Next question how important is Zimone? I don't think Zimone is important. I think it's worse than Scared Colony and Needlethorn Drake. I think that it's about as good as Overgrown Arch Probably better than Cram Session, but not definitely, uh, almost definitely better than Reckless Amplomancer. It doesn't block well early. You have other ways to draw cards, and for the most part, you're trying to end the game rather than draw cards. It costs a lot of mana to use and is killed very easily. Every now and then, it does really impressive things and or demands a removal spell, but it's not, uh, it's not a priority. Next question is about Manifestation Sage and to what extent you should play differently if you have it. I have, you know, skipped playing a two or three drop if my opponent isn't putting me under a lot of pressure to make a larger fractal with it. Uh, as for late game, if you haven't drawn it yet, beats, I mean, sometimes you just draw it and it's not great. If you're in a spot where you can afford to hold lands in your hand, that's great, but often this deck doesn't want to do that. I, I don't think that you should go far out of your way to make sure that if you happen to draw Manifestation Sage late, it's like particularly great. I think it's fine if you just, you know, make a 2-2 and another 2-2 or whatever. It's mostly there because it, you know, is really easy to win games if it's in your opening hand. All right, I am going to 
wrap the podcast up there. So thank you very much, um, everyone, for listening, however you're listening, whenever you're listening. Really appreciate it because I don't like talking to myself. So also, just to note, a lot of people have been sharing decks that they've drafted that were inspired by, you know, one episode of this podcast or another. Really fun for me to see that, uh, see different ways this gets put into practice and to see how this is uh, leading people to think about things differently than they had been before, hearing about how it's been successful. So thanks also to everyone for sharing your results and uh, sharing what you've learned. As I've mentioned, the reason I started doing this project was uh, that I felt like I had an idea about a relatively unique way to help people get um, improve at magic and it's really good to see not just that but how that's worked so thanks everyone for your you know feedback and sharing your results there really good to see when my ideas work that's all for this week and i will be back next week bye